Hi guys, welcome back to Misunderstood. I'm your host, Rachel Yucatel. So our guest today is somebody that I had been trying to get on for a long time. I think he's somebody who really epitomizes um, what this show is about and being misunderstood. Uh, we know Lilo Brancato as playing the role of C, which was Robert De Niro's son in the film A Bronx Tale. Uh, he narrated the film. He was a complete breakout star. And from that, his life changed. He got, you know, to be on shows like Sopranos and a bunch of other things. But if you, by the way, if you haven't seen The Bronx Tale, you should go watch it because it's one of those really timeless movies that I watched it the night before I interviewed him. And, you know, it's just as fascinating and good. And then my daughter saw it and she just fell in love with him. So, but what was interesting is that, you know, while you can watch somebody on screen and really feel for them, you have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. And Lilo had uh, developed a drug problem so bad that he decided one night in looking for drugs to go burglarize a friend's house. And during that burglary, as many of you may know, a undercover cop was shot and killed. Lilo ended up going to prison. Uh, He was uh, sent there for 10 years. He got out after eight and he's been spending all of his time giving back in the treatment community and helping people that uh, are addicts. So he really opens up about his time in prison, how it became a pivotal moment in his life, which he now channels into health helping others. It's an inspirational story of redemption and hope. And I really hope you guys give a chance to listen to my interview with Lilo Brancato. Hey Lilo, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you being with Misunderstood. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So I've been so looking forward to talking to you because you're like the perfect guest for my kind of show. Somebody who, um, maybe had a narrative that was created by the media, um, from people knowing you just from, you know, being in the movies and then something else happening. And so I think it's so important for someone like you to be able to tell your story in your words and also talk about what it's taught you and all the lessons and the power of second chances. Because I think so many people really feel like once somebody has done something or something's happened, it's really hard to come back for it or people just don't give the forgiveness that they can. So I think you're a really good example of someone who's done the work and really shown um, how to make a wrong turn, but how to make a right turn from that. So I think you're really uh, a a really important, inspiring person. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. Um, So let's start with how like most people know you. I think everyone um, has seen a Bronx Tale. If they haven't, you know, they should, obviously. Um, It's something that if you watched it today, it has the same effect on you as if you watched it, you know, years ago, because it's just such a phenomenal film and you are such a phenomenal star in it. When you were a child, did you want to be an actor? No, that just happened. Um, I was working at a florist back in like the early 90s. I was just, you know, I, I was, uh, and there was Christmas time. So we had the Christmas wreaths and I was bringing them outside. And I remember I had, a, I had an Atlanta Braves hat on and, and this guy asked me something. And when I looked up at him, he was like, oh my God, did anyone even tell you you look like Robert De Niro? And, you know, I got to be honest with you. I didn't even really know who he was. I heard the name Robert De Niro, but I didn't really know who he was. And then, you know, like growing up Italian and, you know, every Italian knows who De Niro was. So when I asked my dad and my mom, like, yeah, you know, the guy from, so we started watching his movies and I saw how great he was. And, you know, I wanted to so much then at that point, I don't know if I wanted to be an actor or I wanted to be Robert De Niro. Mm. Um, But then, you know, in 1992, July 5th, 1992, that's when they discovered me on the beach. Mm -hmm. Um, I had heard about the Bronx tale and I know like my cousin read for the part. They went to his school. I know a lot of kids that actually read for the part, but I just thought it would be such a long shot. So they had like, they had like an open casting and just people in your area were, were getting involved. So you didn't really have to have any experience. That's what they wanted. That was like a prerequisite. That's what they wanted. They wanted to make this film as authentic as possible. And that's, I mean, obviously you need the star power to get the film made. So you needed, you had De Niro and you had Pesci, but, you know, and the fact that it was his directorial debut was also a big selling point. But then he went with all unknown actors. Hmm. And, you know, I I have to say 30 years later, I can look back and say he made the right choice. Of course. So tell me about the process of you trying out for the film. What was that like? Um... Well, like I said, they discovered me that day in the beach. The guy, this guy, Marco Greco, he was handing out flyers. And then my brother saw the flyer and, and, you know, automatically knew that he should come get me out of the water because I looked like De Niro. Like, you know, I love De Niro. You know, like, this is my, this is my moment. This is my shot right now. And, you know, my brother could have not said anything and it wouldn't have probably happened. But he did. He came to get me out of the water. 
the guy was there and I started doing it. He's like, wow, you, look, you know, he does look just like him. And uh, so then I did a couple of impersonations for him. He invited me to the Belmont Playhouse mm-hmm. in the Bronx where the actual <clears throat> film takes place, although we didn't shoot it there. But I went there later on that night, no acting experience. He gave me the scene when I was shaving mm-hmm. and I said, hey, dad, but originally De Niro was shaving and I walked to him because the story changed a little bit. But then the way it worked out where the scene was in the film later on was it worked out that scene right before the date. So it made more sense that I was shaving. But that was the scene. Um, and, you know, he you know, the guy Marco told me to, like, take a few minutes, learn it, learn the lines and then we'll do it. And I just it just seemed something that was very familiar to me. Mm-hmm. It just seemed like something I was able to do. Like just looking at it, even though it was my first time, it didn't seem like that. It's just like, okay, interior bathroom night. Uh, hey, Dad, let me ask you, you know. So just like it just was there. I didn't have to really do anything to play this character. Had you ever and read, we, sorry to interrupt you, had you ever no, no, read sides or screenplay like that? N- nothing, nothing. And, oh. and to, to take it a step even further <clears throat> as far as this character my dad, my adopted dad, he's Sicilian. His name is Lilo, like me. Mm-hmm. And that's a very Sicilian name, just like Calogero. Mm-hmm. My father's from a town in the province of Agrigento. There's a little town called Naro. He's the, uh, that, that, you know, like in Italy, all these little towns, like have little saints mm-hmm. that come from these towns. And my father's town was San Calogero. You could look it up. San Calogero di Naro, N-A-R-O. So this name to me was like something I got cousins that come from Sicily on summer vacation. That's their names are Calogero. So like when I heard this name it was like, it was just meant to be. Mm. I was the age and it was just like, it, it seemed really surreal. Like just the way it was all, all the stars were aligning and everything was just happening all at once. And it just happened so fast. But, you know, I went in that night. He loved everything I did. And this was back in the day, like with VHS tapes and stuff like that. So, <clears throat> he put me on tape, loved everything. They sent the tape to Manhattan. They'd sent it to Tribeca. Um, I was working at a law office at that at that time. My dad was a builder. So the, the guy, Corey, who he used to do contracts, the contracts for him, the, the, the real estate stuff, the real estate contracts for the houses, he gave me a summer job. So I was working for him, filing. And I had you know, I was making like $10 an hour mm-hmm. off the books in 1992. That was a lot of money. I remember seeing a check. Yeah, that's a good living. <laughs> yeah, it's in 1992, yeah. 15-year-old kid. So I came home from work that night, and I remember I was making English muffins, and they called. And, you know, like this woman sounded very professional, like, you know, hey, how are you? So I'm, I thought she wanted my dad because my dad, like, gives estimates. You know, he does jobs. He builds extensions and all that. So I said, you want to speak to my dad? She said, are you Lilo? And I said, yeah. She says, oh, I'm so-and-so from Tribeca Productions. We saw the tape. We really loved it. We want you to come down. So now when I went down that first day, it was like a million kids there reading for my part. Mm-hmm. Then I got invited back and there was less invited back. Less, 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 less. To the point, it was just me. Wow. And then eventually they went and introduced me to De Niro. Everything, everybody was introduced on a first name basis. So when they said we're going to go upstairs to meet Bob, it kind of like caught me off guard. Mm-hmm. So we met him. It was like unbelievable. I couldn't even believe it. I don't know if you ever saw a film that he did called Mad Dog and Glory. No. <laughs> it was like an early 90s movie. If you see that film, when I first met him, that's weird. That, he had just finished that. Okay. He had that like mustard colored hair. It was like a weird color. <laughs> so that's when I first met him. And he turned around and he had the hair. And I was just like this little kid and he was coming at me. And then, you know. But he said, I like everything that you're doing. Don't change a thing. You are perfect for this and see other, you know, maybe some, you know, more possibilities. So then, you know, we were working together. I would read 30 different roles, you know, because, you know, um, initially, I got to tell you the end of the story before I can tell you this part, because I don't want to like. So one day he said, listen, I want you to dress like you're going to church. We're going to do a screen test and we're going to put you on film. So that's when he auditioned all the finalists. Mm-hmm. At this point, I thought I was, I thought I had the part. So this kid, the kid who shot Sonny at the end of the film, he came up to me. He was like, Hey, my name's Phil. I'm going to be reading for Colojure as well. Oh, wow. So now I'm like really nervous because I didn't know that there was anyone else because I didn't see anyone else coming to audition. Mm-hmm. So it's just common sense. You don't need to be in the business to know that that's a good sign. Wasn't so he, was like, wasn't wow. he a little older than you? He was. Okay. You're absolutely right. He was 21. I was 16. 
the film would have been a little different. Yeah. Obviously, he was good to have made it to that point. But I guess the decision was made because it works better when the kid's younger. Yeah. Because at 16 years old, you still didn't go right or left. Right. You know what I mean? At 21, you're already like there. You're right. already on your way to like prison. You could or on your way to like, you know. You could still be molded and you're still learning right. those lessons, which becomes such a big part of that movie. And so I think it's probably right. important that they and pick more some impressionable. Of your, right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Right. So, all right. So um, finish your story. I apologize. <laughs> no, well, yeah. So everyone read that it was me versus the kid, versus this guy, Phil. And there was one scene where they beat us up when Sonny said, where'd you go with my car? He went first. They beat him up really bad. They were really slapping him. I was outside with my dad. We're listening. We're hearing it. Bang, smacking him. So then when I went in, I was afraid because I thought it was going to beat me. They were going to beat me up too, but they didn't. Later on, De Niro told me, we didn't have to beat you up. You did it without us having to do that. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, all right. Like, wow. That was like the greatest compliment ever. Yeah. Robert De Niro said, like, you didn't need to do that. Oh, okay. Wow. But, uh, you know, that was Thursday. Then by Monday, Sunday, they called me. They said, Bob wants to see you. I went in on Monday and he basically told me, you know, you got the part. How did that feel when he told you you oh, got the part? Uh, my, I was on the eighth floor and to go up to his floor, you need the key for the elevator. But he overlooks, overlooking the balcony in the balcony. He could see my dad used to drive me down there every day. Mm -hmm. He was my biggest supporter, rest in peace. So he was down there and De Niro, because him and my dad were like the same age. Mm -hmm. And they were like friends. They used to talk. And my De Niro speaks Italian well. So did my dad. And my dad bought him this wine that he liked. And they were like, you know, because De Niro has a son too, Raphael. He's my age. Wow. So he's got a son. So like they had a lot, you know, De Niro was a very down to earth guy. So when he gave me the part, he had his arm around me and he brings me out to the balcony. And, he, you know, and I told my father, I got the part. And my father looked up at me. So it was a really nice time. I called my mom from, he said, if you want some privacy, you could use the the phone in the bathroom. So I went in the bathroom and I called my mom and she was all excited and stuff. So it was a really nice time. Um, I just, I still like at that point, I still couldn't believe that it was happening. Cause like I said, from the forest, this is like something like a dream come true right. to have been in a film with De Niro in this, well, not even in this capacity, yeah. more just to be in a film with him and to work, but to be in a film in this capacity with De Niro, like this guy, is like choosing you to play this role. Right. And, you know, we're a film that he's going to put a stamp on. Like, this is the first time I'm directing. Bang, here it is. You know, so that's, that's you know, that he's got, you know, you got to really, really trust someone. Yeah. You know what I mean? Even me, like if I, I write stuff and, you know, I have ideas to do things. And that's one of the biggest things, one of my biggest concerns. Can I trust this person? Because mm -hmm. like, I like to write intricate, like really intricate, complex characters. And this is like, you know, stuff that I've seen in these places I've been because people are all, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, and then it comes down to truck. Can I trust this person? You're going to show up every day. Are you going to be able to do this? You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, that's, that's a lot. And just now putting myself in those shoes, that's really important. And it makes it so much more special for me to have been in that film, knowing what this guy, I mean, I'm not even close to what De Niro is. De Niro is De Niro. Mm -hmm. And to say, I'm going to make this film with this guy and I hope you love it. You know what I mean? It's it's really, it says a lot. You well, know? you really, I mean, I rewatched the film two nights ago because I knew I was having you on and you made the film. I mean, you have um, Chaz Palminteri in there. You have Robert De Niro. Obviously you have uh, a bunch of different people that are phenomenal, but you narrate the whole film and then you're really in it and you make all the difference to the film, honestly. So what was that like um, acting with them though? Were you nervous being in scenes with them? Were you, I mean, did they coach you at all? What was your relationship that built on the, those days with them? I got to say, you know, one thing that I did, that was my first film. So everything that was done on that set and everything in preparation, I thought was all standard. This is the way it's done, mm -hmm. but it's not, it's not. There was so much preparation, so much rehearsal. De Niro would have a video cam. We didn't have the phones. You know, this is back in 92. Yeah. He'd be, we'd be on the sidewalk, you know, on regular days, you know, on the, like on the locations, like there was a lot of preparation. So by the time we got there, it was like nothing. Right. I'm so excited to tell you guys about our new sponsor, Green Chef. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well with dinners that you can personalize to your own taste and lifestyle. I try to be very conscious of what I eat, and I love that everything in Green Chef is pre-proportioned for me without having to measure. And as the only keto meal kit, Green Chef makes sticking to a carb-conscious lifestyle so easy. 
I take my health very seriously, and I love it that Green Chef does as well. By bringing me seasonal recipes featuring certified organic fruits and vegetables, organic cage-free eggs, and sustainably sourced seafood. It's summertime, which means if you're like me, you're busier than ever with activities, kids at home, holidays. And what I love about Green Chef is that everything is done for you. All you have to do is throw it together and it's ready in literally less than 30 minutes. It's so fast. It's really going to save me time this summer with my crazy schedule and it will totally save you time. And not only that, the food is so good. I'm personally so excited to try the lemon basil caper pork with sauteed cauliflower, bell pepper, almonds, and feta cheese. It looks so good and healthy. And oh my gosh, I'm looking here. The fig and prosciutto pita pizzas with feta, mozzarella, tomato, and kale salad with hazelnuts look like an amazing and super fast lunch option that even my daughter Wyatt is excited to try. I have to admit the cooking is not my favorite activity. And not only that, I really suck at it, but I do love great food. And actually, I also love staying home. So Green Chef is going to be the best of both worlds for me. So give Green Chef a try today. Use our special discount code for a great deal. You're not going to believe this. You get 60% off plus free shipping. So go to greenchef.com slash understood60 and use code understood60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. That's all lowercase, by the way. And again, that's greenchef.com slash understood60 and use code understood60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. You know, I mean, obviously the camera's rolling, you know, the stakes are a little higher, mm -hmm. but we did build that level of comfort amongst each other as actors and build that, built that chemistry that when it was time to go, we, you know, we were ready. And did you know it would be such a hit? No, I didn't think so. I thought it was, I thought it was a gamble, mm -hmm. you know, because it's like, we are our all unknown actors. Mm -hmm. People could have watched it and said, where did they make this piece of shit? Why don't they use real actors? Because excuse my language. But it could have went that way as well, mm -hmm. you know, but, uh, but I, you know, I, mean, I just kind of felt something special going on, mm -hmm. you know, every day being there. And I felt very confident in what I was able to do under De Niro's, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and his guidance. And uh, I mean, you know, because he's like, he was directing you as an actor. It was, like, it was better for me, I think. He wasn't directing me as a director. He was directing me as an actor from one actor to another. Wow. Not. Not saying this is the way I think you should do it because he's not like that. I can't even explain it, but it was like from one actor to another. And for me, it helped me. Right. Because there was no, no minced words. It was just like this. You know what I mean? Right. De Niro's very straightforward. He's not a man of many words. And he's just like, just think of what it is. You know, like, and that's, those are like nothing. Those are like three, think of what it is, nothing. But when you do think of what it is and you think of yourself in the situation and the camera's rolling, it just, I don't know. He just did it right. And I just felt like I was never nervous and I was where I needed to be. Wow. To, you know. um, I'm just curious, what was your relationship like with um, Chaz? Because you spent so much time with him, at least on camera. Oh, uh, yeah. We, you know, I, I said this in interviews. I remember one time I saw this interview when I was a kid. It was, but it was like I had three fathers at that time. I had my own dad and then I had De Niro and then I had Chaz. So we were very close. We were very close. I remember Chaz. I remember back then my favorite store was The Gap. So I remember he said that, uh, he, you know, because we were close and, uh, you know, kind of took me under his wing. And he said before we do the film, he took me on a little shopping spree. Have you know, spent like a thousand dollars at The Gap, which, you know, was like back in 92, was more than it is now. And it was yeah. just a very nice gesture, you know? Wow. So, so you yeah. were close with these guys. So, all right, the movie Absolutely. comes out. It's a huge hit. Um, how did that affect you? What, what kind of went on in your life after that? Well, once that happened, you know, you start seeing all these people come out of the woodwork from everywhere. Mm -hmm. Relatives that you didn't know. Oh, they were there, but they never chose to reach out until now. And just like everything. And everything was happening at a really fast pace. Mm -hmm. And it seems like, because you don't have that experience, it seemed like everyone wanted to be your friend. Right. Um, you know, and it's just like, just the way they were coming at you. It just seemed like it was okay to do the things that I was being exposed to. Mm -hmm. Just because these people seem so cool and they all have my best, best interest at heart. And it was like the hugest recipe for disaster. Right. So all of a sudden yeah. you're being offered all these different temptations and all these things that normally may not have come down your path, but they did. And at this point, I'm assuming you're making more money than you had had from $10 an hour. Uh, right. And that could sort of feed any 
um, fun times or, you know, bad times, so to speak. So talk to me about that. I mean, so obviously drugs, I have to bring it up, have been a big part of your past because they're a big, you know, addiction is a big part of who you are now and who who you're helping. So everyone has a first time. How did you get involved with drugs the first time? I mean, it was, I mean, you want to consider weed because, you know, weed, weed was, I mean, I drank prior to that, but like drinking is so socially acceptable. Even though I was a little kid, 12, 13 years old, but like on New Year's, I go to all my aunts and uncles and my cousins. Of course you have a little champagne. And of course you have one, two glasses, you're already drunk. So I don't even know if you want to count that. But the first time I smoked weed was with the kid who shot Sonny in the Bronx still. He was doing his scenes. Right. And he was my, he's still my friend. I just talked to him like three weeks ago. You would think we, we, he would hate me, but he's like came to see me when I was away. He's a really good guy. His name is Phil Garbarino. So one night, you know, they had the car service for me usually to take me home. And, and someone said, you know, it's going to be a little bit of a wait if you want to wait or Phil Garbarino could take you home. He said, no problem. So I said, I'll just, you know, I'll go with Phil. So he, you know, we were driving, we were in the Bronx and I remember looking at this ashtray and he had some roaches and I didn't know what they were. So I was like, what is that? And he was like, now I'm even suddenly started saying it was weed. So we smoked. I didn't get high the first time. And then we smoked on set because I had an apartment. Because when I had my tutor and stuff, and I used to let my friends, because I was the lead, I had the biggest apartment. So I used to let my friends go in there. I gave them the case. So these guys are in there smoking weed. So now when I went in there, I smelt it and they, oh, it's only Lilo. So they grabbed it from under the, you know, under the rug, under the carpet, and they started smoking it again. And this, and because I thought I was high the first time, but I wasn't. So I smoked. I took like two hits and then I had to do the scene when I asked, is it better to be loved or feared? Mm. That was the first time I was ever high. Watch that scene again. You wow. can see my eyes. Yeah, I didn't know. It's so embarrassing, but it's it's because like I said, I thought I was high the first time and I thought I was going to be able to handle it. And that was the first time. Yeah. Um, and thank God I didn't have a lot of dialogue. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I mean, did they ever notice that you started to change a little bit while you were working on that film? That was the only day. Okay. That was the only day. That's not really when it was noticeable. That's when I started entering the belly of the beast. That was just like a little drinking, some smoking weed. And that's pretty much about it. But then like later on, after the film had come out, that's when I started with like the, you know, the hallucinogens, but the cocaine. That's when I discovered that. So, I, you you know, know, addiction is a really interesting thing because a lot of people will, you know, frown upon it. Right. And, and act like they're above it. But quite frankly, I think that everyone's been in like related to addiction in some way, shape or form. If they are not an addict, they have been affected by addiction in some way from somebody in their family, a loved one, a friend. And, you know, I think it's really important to make mention of that because I think honestly, addiction in all ways, shapes and forms can affect everybody. And it's a really important topic. Um, for me personally, I was never an addict, but my father died of a cocaine overdose when he was 44 years old. I was 15. It obviously affected me and it changed my life in the way that I was always scared to try drugs because I knew that I had an addictive personality and he was someone who always, you know, would frown upon drugs and say that it, it was not for him and it was for people lesser than him that could and handle it and blah, blah, blah. And then as soon as he got into it, it became such a big part of his life. I mean, he didn't even have a septum in his nose anymore because he had done so much cocaine. So, you know, anyways, I just think that it's, it's such a thing. It's such a big thing that people should really pay attention to and listen to because it's not just people that have like lost control or don't give a shit. There's so much more to it. And it usually stems from some sort of pain or trauma is what I have found. Um, right. Well, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's the real gateway. Mm. You know, the, the pain, the trauma. Yeah. And, you know, like addiction manifests in so many different ways. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's like people just, they hear the word. It's not only like the people have shopping addiction, sex addictions. You know, there's so many. I actually wrote a screenplay called Never Meet Your Heroes. Um, it's about addiction. My character's a gambler, Joey Preston. And I'm going to have Terrell Hicks from The Bronx Tale. She's going to play my wife, Joanne. The girl, we have a the girl who played your girlfriend in, in yeah, in but the we're Bronx not Town. the same characters as a Bronx Tale, right? Right. I wrote this is all off the top of my head, and it just shows how addiction manifests and how it's passed on genetically. Yeah, how that addictive gene is passed on genetically, genetically, and then with trauma being the catalyst, it can set it off. It's you know nature versus nurture, and this is what I do at the treatment center. Yeah, I teach this kind of stuff. So I'm getting like real life experiences and stuff I personally experience. And then maybe I'll get a little piece from what this girl just said. Holy shit. Wow. What did she just say? You know, like it's crazy. Some of the stuff you hear, right. but it's just like, and just how you said, you know, you were afraid to go that way. 
I see what these kids go through now with this fentanyl and stuff. I would be afraid to relapse. I would be afraid to relapse. I hear the horror stories like these kids today are much worse than my generation. Like they'll shoot anything. They'll shoot marijuana if they could. Yeah. They, you know, it's like the craziest thing, but this is where I'm getting this story. I would say it's about 90% done. I I could shoot it right now, but I just want more complexity. I have everything on index cards. I have all apps. I have it, you know, I have it in script form too, but as new stuff comes to me, I just write it on index cards and then I put it in the script. I love it. It gives me like, for me now, this is a high. Yeah. Like writing is a high. Right. Like, it gives you a purpose and something to look forward to, which I think is so important. And you know what? Sometimes like back in the day, like if things weren't going my way, I was a little upset. I'd go drink and get high. But now when I feel like that, I don't even, that's the furthest thing from my mind. Yeah. When I do that now, I get the index cards. And it's crazy because when I'm like that, it's when the best stuff comes out of me. Yeah. Totally. It just comes out so naturally. Sometimes I'll have writer's block when I'm like the happiest guy and everything's cool and nothing comes. And then like one night of me just like being upset at my brother or something, I go get the index card and I just wrote, you know, backstory for the whole family. I can tell you where they come from. I can tell you the father's a bus mechanic at Liberty Lines. Like all this stuff is like, because I see this, you know, I don't know. It just brings it out of me. So it's a good thing. I I think it's so amazing that, and we'll get into that in a minute about how you're helping people now, because I think it's so important for people that need the help here about someone else's experience that's really been through it. And you've really been through it. You know what I mean? So just talk to us for a minute more about how you uh, realized that you're drinking and you're doing marijuana and whatever all of a sudden became a problem and you were chasing that high all the time to get yourself into a place where you got in trouble. Well, it didn't happen like that, but I knew it was a problem because like, you know, like when we did it, like, you know, 18, 19 years old and I did it with my other friends there. I didn't go to college. I did it after. And I do have, you know, I do have a degree, but it was after it was away. It's like, I always find a need to have to do it. Not all the time, but if I have liquor, if I drank, it's definitely happening. I would take, I would like steal my father's car that I've crashed in the past. I would spend $60, $30 going in a cab, $30 coming back just to go get a 20 bag, you know, like that kind of stuff. And then it just, but that was when it wasn't really that bad. Right. The It was like weekend warrior type stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, what cocaine psychosis is. Mm-hmm. I do. People get like, yeah, they get like paranoid like that. Cause I used to get like that, like really like an extreme case. And I knew all the guys and this is going to be in my film too. It's going to be meth psychosis though. My daughter's going to experience it. So one night I'm experiencing this in the car with my friends. And I thought these guys were going to kill me for real. Just the way they're looking at me. These guys I grew up with. So I was like, you know what? I just opened the side door and I jumped out doing 60 miles an hour. Oh my God. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. So enter narcotic pain medication. That's how this, that's how that started. Wow. So now, because I'm, I, you know, like I was in the hospital, I had staph infection and give me morphine. And then I started taking the, you know, the, uh, the Vicodin, cause that was back in, this was happened in 2000. Okay. So that was Vicodin, Percocet, you know, even before Oxy. It's like right around that time. So then I started taking those and I didn't, I didn't realize how good they were. Mm-hmm. And I remember my mom had them. They were all over the house. You go to the dentist, right? So then I was like, wow, these things are great. So I just started taking them. And then it got to a point where I was taking like 40 a day, 50 wow. a day, you know? Um, and that was like 2000. It got bad. You know, I had this one girlfriend. She was six years older than me. And all she wanted to do was get married. And I wasn't ready. And I was doing a lot of drugs. So she moved on. She's married now, has kids. I just actually, she actually messaged me recently too. She's doing well. But then I met another girl in 2003. So because I'm th- just the time lapse from 2000 to 2003. Because in 2003 is when I met the girl whose father shot the cop. Okay. She was like 19 years old. Because now I, I didn't want someone older just because they wanted to get married. I didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. So I figured someone younger would be safe. I met her at the gym. We started hanging out. She had her own place. Her father lived downstairs. And that was like my haven to like do drugs. So I was taking pills and my addiction was getting worse. She was going to Fordham College. She was actually going to go to like go to school to be a doctor, take the MCATs and all of that. Mm-hmm. So she was like really bright. So in the beginning, things were good. You know, first couple of years. I mean, I met her dad at this point and I seen him, you know, he was a rough guy, serious guy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then by 2000, I would say for, end of four, 2005 is when I started with the heroin. Mm-hmm. Then I, cause the pills, they were just so hard to get on the street. 
They were being more regulated by the government. It was just harder to get. And Heroin's always- And what, what I just wanted to say is that what people maybe miss the fact on is that like all these things you're talking about up until the heroin is stuff that like people have in their cabinets and they can get totally addicted to it and not even realize it's a problem until it moves to the next stage. But like, that's what's scary, especially now because kids are doing it like it's nothing. And then you add something in that, by the way, it only takes one time to, you know, be doing Coke that's laced with fentanyl and you're dead. So it just, it's, it's people don't even realize that they have a problem sometimes. Yeah. Go ahead. And that's, I didn't know that it was a problem until like, I remember we ran out of the pills in the house. So there just was no more. I, mean, I did the ones that the doctor gave me. I ate all my father's, my brother's, went in the medicine. So they are hydrocodone. Those are, you know, and I did them all. So now it's like, all right, no more. So I didn't think twice. I said, all right, you know, whatever it's over, you know? And then I didn't realize. And then when I went to sleep, that's when I realized I couldn't sleep. And then I was getting sick and I felt something, you know, like I felt like I had a flu, but it was a little different. It was a little different. So I'm like, huh, this is weird. What is this? So I'm like tossing and turning. And then I remember who it was that I spoke to. And they're like, yeah, you're probably withdrawing from those pills. I'm like, oh, is that what it is? And then that's when I went to seek the pills. And then that was, I couldn't get those. And then it was the heroin. And then I started with the crack too, because I was doing the cocaine. And it was like the summer, it was like June of 05 when everything really set in motion, June of 05. And then by October, the girl broke up with me. She's like, you know, like I'm going to school to be a doctor. I can't have this distraction. I'm like smoking crack in her house and like bad people are in the house and just really bad stuff. So she broke up with you because of your drug addiction. Right. And so, and up until now, had anyone else kind of confronted you or said, you have a problem? I can't be with you. Did anyone else kind of have some boundaries? Well, the first girlfriend, the one that was older than me, that was one of the issues as well, that I didn't want to get married and I was a drug addict, you know, but I wasn't nearly as bad with the first one that, cause you know, it progressed yeah. and it got a lot worse. Yeah. So yeah. Then said like when I didn't expect her to say, you know, I don't want to be with you anymore. It was just like, I just, I was devastated. I couldn't believe it. Right. So, wow. And then I went back home and then my drug addiction really spiraled out of control. Mm-hmm. And every time I would go by the house, her or her twin sister would call the cops. So, so then I said, you know what? I got to find a loophole. So then I started hanging out with her father who like, you know, we had a lot of, we snorted heroin together. He was, you know, he's a bad guy. He snorted the heroin. So then we became more friendly. So then I would just say, I'm here to see your father. So then one, that one, you know, December 10th, 2005, we'd become, and the only time we had really ever hung out to go get drugs. I'd pick him up at the bar, drive to the spot and then come back, drop him off. And that's it. But he called me at like, you know, I think it was like 12, one in the morning. He calls me, he says, I'm the next tell. He says, do you want to go get a drink? That was the first time. And I was like, yeah, all right. Cause I knew that would entail smoking crack, snorting dope, you know? So I went, picked them up. We went both crack. Then we went to the strip club that my friend ran. So we didn't go through the metal detector, which was in the, you know, the trial. Cause they would say, how do you, this guy not know about the gun, but like they never seen us. Cause he said, have him go around. So we go to this place. We're hanging out for a few hours. Now we wanted more heroin because like we were smoking crack. We'd go out in the parking lot, smoke crack, go back inside. So that would eat away the heroin. Mm -hmm. So now we're getting like really sick. And at this point in time, like right now, I'm like 170. Like back then I was like 140. I was really like doped out, drugged out. So then I, you know, we decided we needed to get more. And that's when we went to the Bronx. And I was so desperate and I knew this guy. That's why I was so sloppy making all this noise. Because in my mind, because I knew the guy and I was so fucked up on so many things, drunk, smoke, you know, practice, that I just broke the window. And it's like when they, you know, who does that in a burglary? Like I would never, like I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I'm not going to make all that noise. I knew the guy. Just the what I said that I knew the guy, he was my friend, is exactly the way it really was. You know, there's stuff in that case. You know, so what, what I was just going to ask. So what was your intention? Obviously, you were going there to get drugs. Did you know we were he going had to get drugs? The- prescription uh, codeine because the guy I knew in the Bronx didn't have anything. So this was a desperate attempt. He lived next door to the little kid who played me at nine years old. Mm. His, his sister was my first love. That's how I knew this guy. He used to drive me to Yonkers. Like I would sleep over their house and sometimes her mom couldn't drive me. This guy was a Vietnam veteran. He was like loopy. He was like rain man. And he would take me on because he used to give me prescription pills back then. Mm. So then I, I don't like, cause we were in that neighborhood. So it kind of dawned on me. Maybe we could go to this 
guy's house. I know he's in there. I know he likes me. He used to drive me home. My father used to give him cucumbers and tomatoes from the garden. So I know we're friends. And these people painted this picture. These guys are bloodthirsty cop killers. Ah, it was nothing even close to that. It was not even close to that. It's so every time I hear this and people like people drive by me, cop killers. It's, like, it's, it's the craziest thing. So I'm like, you know, broke the window, all this noise. As I'm walking away, someone said, don't move. Boom, boom, started shooting. I got shot three times. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So I got shot first. So now I'm like holding my stomach, this blood leaking out of my, like through my fingers. And I just can't believe it's happening. I'm walking away. More shots. I hear my friend screaming. I didn't even know he had a gun. And when people go, how did you not know, Lilo? Okay, how about this? I was 30 years old. I was 29, 30 years old at this point, right? So if I was a gun guy and I was hanging out with people and we were doing this on a regular basis, don't you think there would have been some pattern established? Like maybe in grade school, you hit a kid in the head with a chair. And then at a house party in college, I stabbed somebody. So then you're like, you know what? He's a bad kid. This shit was bound to happen. I've never been in trouble like that. Mm -hmm. And just the way they spun. So I got shot. This guy. So now I don't know. This guy has a gun because I would have never let him in my car. It's not like this is some, you know, so now I'm already down the street because my fight or flight kicked in yeah. my adrenaline. It really works. And this is why, you know, I had the same attorney as uh, Trump, Joe Tacopina. Oh, yes. I, I had, did. Know, yeah. yeah. Okay. But there was some, you know, like there was an independent witness. I screamed, can I, can I, as I'm like holding clutch and I didn't walk one. And I'm like, and I'm screaming, Kenny, that's the guy who lived in the house that they were saying we were robbing. Right. I was that's, just going to ask, where was he? Did he ever come to the door? No, he died. He died in July of, of, of HIV. Oh, my God. Imagine that. So I think he was a heroin addict. OK, he was in the Vietnam War. And that's why he was a veteran. And that's how he got HIV and died. I didn't know that. But the fact that I'm shot up and screaming, Kenny, should tell you, I don't know, he's dead. Number one. And number two, that should show you. That should show the jury that this guy wasn't robbing this guy. Yeah. Because in a situation like that, that's what's called a spontaneous utterance. It's not a statement. Your, your adrenaline, your subconscious mm-hmm. is saying these things. This is what you're thinking, right? So why didn't I scream police? Why didn't I scream Armento, the guy I was with? Why didn't I scream mommy? Right. No, I screamed Kenny, the guy who you said I'm robbing, mm-hmm. okay? A burglary, if you feel that you have license or privilege to be in there, it's not a burglary. I'm screaming. Why? When I, this is my most legitimate shot at getting help. And if I'm screaming at him, doesn't it make sense that I wouldn't be robbing the guy who I feel at the same time I had the most legitimate shot at saving my life? So did it end up being someone else's house and he had, after he died, someone else bought the house or it was his family? No. I don't know oh. because his parents were old because he was a veteran. So he was older too. Yeah. His parents were really old when we knew him back then. And his mom was like a little, like had dementia. Okay. But his dad, you know, the dad, I spoke to him a few times. He was an old Italian American guy. You know? Okay. So, but, but that's so you're running away and the guy that you had gone there with the father of your ex-girlfriend at this point had shot the off-duty cop. Correct. Did you even know that that had gone down? No, I did not know that went down. Um, now, the around the corner, I was going to get the car to go get him because I felt strong enough. I heard him screaming. So I literally wanted to get the car, get him and get out of there. But once I got to the corner, all that fight or flight, it left me. My legs got weak. There was blood all over my car. And I just literally collapsed. I'm literally against the wall. And at this point, I thought I'm going to die. Next thing you know, cops come. They were down the street at this place called Holy Bagels. They were getting bagels down the street. Next thing you know, they come up. Because they heard gunshots. It wasn't the 4th of July. So it was like, what the hell is this? So then they come up and they see me. You know, like we're in the Bronx, the kid from the Bronx tale, right? So it's like, is this real, right? So the guy's like, I'm like, uh, and he's like, oh my God. He's like, look who it is. It's Calogero from the Bronx tale, right? I couldn't even believe this shit was happening, right? I'm like holding on for dear life. I'm about to die. These guys talking about the Bronx. I'm surprised the guy didn't ask me, how was it working with De Niro? Right? So, so... So next thing you know, he says, "Did he, who shot you? Who the fuck shot you? Was it him? And then I look and I see like the guy I was with, he was riddled. He got shot like eight times. He's got a 357 Magnum and he's got, he's got latex gloves on. Mm-hmm. 
He's got all this. And, and they tell him, drop the gun, drop the fucking gun, dropped it. So then we went in ambulances and then that was like a crazy night and people like calling the, the ambulance, like come here. Cause they, the cop was, you know, they know him. That's their neighbor. So in other words, like screw these two pieces of shit. Come help this guy. Come help this guy. That's what it was. Right? So, so at that we point were you, were you realizing this was a cop that was now down? No, you no. didn't. Okay. No, not yet. It was like, not this, that morning. Cause it was already like five 30 in the morning. We had the emergency surgery. I got my spoon removed part of my colon. I had a collapsed lung. I was in bad shape. I was on like life support. Not that morning. Cause obviously I was very out of it. The next morning I was handcuffed to the bed, right? Imagine that with tubes intubated and all that handcuffed to the bed. Next thing you know, some guy, this like little doctor, he comes over there and he goes, he goes, are you proud of yourself? Show me the cover of the paper. Are you proud of yourself? He goes, you and your friend killed the cop. That's because that I was, he woke me up to tell me that because wow. I was so out of it. And then I was like, almost like I was like crying, like, you know, like serious, mm-hmm. you know, that's very serious stuff. I mean, not even that's a cop. Somebody's dead. Right. At the hands of my addiction. Like this is what everyone always talked about this. And now it's here. Right. Now I got, you know, now I kind of see what I got to do to get myself out of this. Right. And these poor family, these people, you know. So, so. eventually, obviously you went to trial and t- tell us what happened in the trial. You were acquitted of. Murder, right? I mean, right. okay. Murder to felony murder. When you attempt to commit, commit in furtherance or an immediate flight therefrom. So it's not an intentional thing. Mm-hmm. If you're part of a felony and a non-participant dies, that's felony murder. You rob an old lady's purse, she has a heart attack, she dies, you killed her. That's wow. not just, yeah, that's felony murder. So it's very serious. So I was acquitted of that. I was acquitted of two counts of burglary because we never went in. And then the two, there was two lesser included offenses the attempted burglary with the firearm, which they couldn't prove that I knew about. And then you had the attempted burglary with serious physical injury to a non-participant. And that's what they convicted me of. The sentencing guideline was three and a half to 15. They gave me 10, which was a little, a little much because um, there's, there's different cases in that county with eight years, a guy had a second conviction and they gave me 10. But whatever, you know, um, I went upstate. Um, I didn't even have a high school diploma at that point because wow. I was, you know, all those years I was like messing around with drugs and I got in the movies and I always, I always put it off. But now I thought to myself, this is the perfect time to do this. Yeah. It's at least I can come home because you know what? I dodged a really big bullet. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? I could have went away for 25 to life. That would have been the last thing on my mind. But now I know I'm going to be home. I'm still going to be in my thirties, a young guy. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm, here. I'm going to educate myself. And, you know, like people, when I come home, people want to hear my story. Yeah. So it's, it's, I have a vested interest to learn how to speak better, you know, speak well to like, you know, people, you know, just give you more of the, you know, the benefit of the doubt. So you had so a really, about, you learned how to have a really good attitude about being there and take advantage of what you could do and learn there, obviously. Right. Absolutely. I always looked on the bright side and that it was a reason why I was there. I mean, obviously I would have been dead. You know how many times I would call my mom from there? Oh, oh yeah. Your friend Jimmy died. I saw his aunt the other day. He overdosed in his his basement. Oh, wow. Oh, you know, Anna's son, Angelo. Yeah, he died. Wow. Oh, wow. So many people. And when this was happening and I'm hearing this, I'm like, I'm in the place where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. I am where I am supposed to be. And it was totally fine. I got my education. I got an associate's degree. Well, first I got my GED. That was pretty easy. And then I majored in business management. I learned so much. Mm-hmm. Microeconomics, ethics, you know, politics accounting. I learned so much. Mm. I learned so much. And I came out of that. I was so satisfied with what I did with my time. It's so, um, you know, go ahead. Oh, no, 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 I was going to say, it's so interesting to me though, that it's almost like, you know, life imitates art. I mean, it's very similar to what happened in the Bronx tale with the exception right. that you figured it out before you went over to, you know, the, those guys, you know, you got out of the car, Chaz saved you and you got out of the car before it all happened and your life spun down the right. drain. Um, but, you know, I think it's very interesting how, how there were so many similarities. I'm curious if you thought about that movie and the lessons you learned from the movie, because there were so many good things about, you know, there's nothing worse than wasted talent, you know? And I wondered if that ever haunted you. Oh my God, it still does, you know, but I tried to offset it by just making and being the best me, whether it's in film and television or something else, because that's not what life's all about. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot more to life, a lot of other things that I do. I do enjoy, I do enjoy that as well. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that definitely, uh, the saddest thing in life is wasted talent. 
Yeah. You know, although I think it's one of the saddest things in life. For me, the saddest thing in life is when a little baby's born sick and they never did anything and they're just born sick. To me, that's sadder than wasted talent. Right. You know, but uh, it's definitely one of the saddest things. But, um, you know, but let's talk about one other thing. Like I, that's in, in jail is where I got sober. Okay, yeah, I was going to ask you. prison, but right after I entered the hospital, I went to Rikers Island. That's city jail. That is the worst. You Google the top worst five jails in America, and you'll see what, you'll see what, what they say. And I guarantee that place is a nut house. You have no idea what a nut house it is. And that's where I did three years. It's hell on earth. Oh, wow. Like, you have no idea the things that go on in this place. Like... 2006, I was in punitive segregation. I was in the hole, in the box. They put me in this place for 28 days for smoking. They found sulfur and they found the match under my shoe. So whatever, they sent me to the box, they gave me 28 days. So when you go out to the yard with these, you know, like there's all bloods. I didn't even know that there were bloods in New York. I didn't even know there were bloods in New York. Mm-hmm. I thought it was only California. So we go like, when you go to wreck, there's 50 cells. You're just locked in. There's a little window. So you got to wait up by your gate like, yo, yo, I want to go to wreck. Yo. And then they see you. They open up the slot. That means they know they got to cuff you. Mm-hmm. If the slot's open, then the next gate. Then we go into this one place where they search. Like I grew up with all Italians. So Italians call each other cuz. Yo, what's up, cuz? How you doing, cuz? Right? So I called this guy cuz. When we went to the thing, I'm like, yo, what's up, cuz? And the bloods called each other homie. What's popping, homie? And the crips called each other cuz. What's cracking, cuz? Right? So I'm like, yo, what's up, cuz? How you doing, right? So he's like, what the fuck you say? I'm like, what? Right? What happened, right? So then the other kid was like, no, no, he didn't mean anything by it. Right? Just like the worst day in jail. I tell you the worst. I don't even think I've ever said this on anything. This is the pride of her. This is my worst day in jail. It was like March 2006. So these guys are about to kill me. I'm still strung out. I'm like 140. Five pounds. I'm like a goldfish amongst all these piranhas, and I'm like leaking blood. That's what I felt like, right? But you know, the fact that I was there for a cop murder, that kind of saves you because they like that kind of stuff. It's not like you're there, like they're like, y'all fuck. You know, like they're, they're crazy, right? So now, okay, everything gets straightened out. So now we're on the fifth floor. We got to go down to the yard, walking down the stairs. Mm-hmm. And we got like 10, 15 guys on what's called the daisy chain where you get cuffed on your ankles and you're hooked up to another 15 guys and you're shackled everywhere you go. Right. I didn't know this was the stairway of death. So what happens is they start going down really fast. If you don't know, you get trampled. You're going to slip and they're going to kill you. So like I almost died in these stairs. Right. So like all this stuff and I'm still getting high. I'm still a fiend as bad as all this is. Like I should learn my lesson. Like I'm about to get, I almost get killed in the stairs. And then we get, and then, like, we're all in our own little cages. So these guys are smoking weed. This is before I got sober, right? So he was like, you want some? So he started saying, I sold drugs to kids in Yonkers. because these are all Bronx guys, a lot of Bronx bloods. So I was like, he started rattling off these names. And he said, Mitchell Guido. I'm like, yeah, I know Mitch. So we started talking. So we thought everything was cool. You got the, They get searched, like, 20 times. Meanwhile, the guy's got blunts. Like, where do you put this stuff mm-hmm. that they don't see it? He's got, like, it's like he was in the street, right? So he's in the cage across, right? So now... He says, I'll save you some. So I'm waiting for him to save it. So then he throws it on the floor. He steps on it. I was like, yo, I thought you were going to save me some. And he was like, he totally flipped on me, right? I'm like, oh my God, this guy's crazy, right? So I'm like, we had a couple words, whatever. I didn't want to make a big deal because I couldn't do anything. He couldn't do anything. So then we got back on the trains because they got these 50 cells, 50 little cages. So they got to you know, get everybody. So there's a lot of waiting time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was getting church. I was getting morphine at church. I was getting morphine at church. I had another blood in the next cell block. He used to get me heroin, four bags for $100 from Brooklyn. It was called hard bodies to put in the ramen noodles. And then on November 12, 2006, I went to church. I got 20 morphine, MS Compton. I chewed them. And then I snorted four bags of dope. And then I'm in the corner in the TV room. And I got this guy, Bobby. He's playing lookout for me. He's looking down. He's like with the nose. I'm in the corner. Camera's in the corner, right? And I'm smoking a, a cigarette that I rolled. Right. So I'm over there like it felt like my my throat was trying to swallow my tongue. I was ODing and I didn't realize what was happening. Wow. So I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, I have to keep my hand in my mouth. And I said, yo, I don't feel good. I went down to my cell. I said, come check on me. He didn't even make it. another guy. I was like, dude, your eyes are all white. You're like trying to take your. So I overdosed that day. 
I still didn't stop doing drugs. I didn't tell on anyone. I said it was my, my sugar levels went. That's why that happened. But it was the weekend. So they couldn't drug test me till Monday. So I still got that heroin. I still got the connect. I'm not telling. They closed my cell up. So I'm going, 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 going. Then on November 18th was the last time I got high. Okay. When I was in the box, I had a, a, an attorney visit from Corey. Remember the attorney that I worked for? Yeah. Him? See, you're still there for me. And he's in recovery as well. Right. You know, so like, you know, so since 82. So he was like my mentor, Corey Rabin. And then you have my cousin, Pat, who's a judge now, but he was an attorney as well. So they were able to come whenever. It's not like designated visit days. They can come whenever. So these guys come in and I was like happy to see them. And then he was, they were like not happy to see me. They were very disappointed, very disappointed. And just for some reason that day, I really felt it. And they were like, you know what? You got all these people that want to see you beat this case. You keep doing this and someone's dead. And for some reason, it just like resonated with me. Like what I should have heard a long time ago, I heard that just at that moment. Yeah. And I never looked back. When I left that attorney visit that day, it, I swear to God, it felt like a modern day miracle. That obsession to want to get high was lifted. I went to church. I seen all the same people and it just left me. And then I got addicted to like working out, studying my case and all of that. Right. So I know you have a hard out, so I just want to wrap it up because it's like now, but I do want to just talk about the process and what you are in now and your recovery really quickly and like the lessons you've oh, learned. Sure, sure, and- sure. Um, well, what do I, I do now? I'm director of public relations over at More Life Recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everyone there is basically in recovery as well. Mm-hmm. The, one of the owners, his name is Steve, Stephen Barone. He was with another company and uh, I was with them first. But this is a little more hands-on, you know? I never really got anything from meetings, like going to NA meetings. They're very cultish. Mm-hmm. And it just doesn't work for me. Because it seems like, I don't know, they brainwash you. Like you're the sick, a diseased person and you have to come or you go, oh my God, I don't want that. Like that chapter's gone. Like I don't want to keep saying I'm an addict. I'm Lilo, I'm an yeah. addict. You know, I just don't want to do that. And I get so much more. Because I know, like I write up lesson plans and stuff like that. Like you've, you've ever heard of like one of the most experience, experience based neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. You know what that is? Yes. You know, like how your brain, like when people say, oh, you only remember the bad stuff. Like that's true to a certain extent because that's what your brain allows you to remember yeah. to protect you for survival, the good stuff. So this is the kind of stuff. And like when, and they see me, I come and dressed up nice and it's just like such a beautiful thing. You know what I mean? To get some of these kids, their moms and dads message me like, Months after they left more life and to message me and say, you know, this, you know, my son, Sean is doing so well. Lilo, thank you. This kind of stuff is so bread. It's like so rewarding, way better than seeing yourself in a movie and stuff like that. Because do you know like what I would have done for my parents to stop feeling the way they did when I was getting high? My mom and dad used to cry. My dad, kidding me? My dad was as tough as you're going to get. Look at that's my dad right there. Oh, Okay. And he was, he built homes and he was, he was, he wasn't a street guy, but trust me, he was just as tough as one. And he worked like you have no idea. And he was as tough as they got. And the reason why I'm building up the toughness is because when he used to see me like that and he would know he was helpless, you would see that tough guy cry like a baby. And I think about those days and see my mom and dad and how they cried because they were powerless. Yeah. It's like, you know, how much more can we do? We've told you we will do anything. We've told you what you need to do. But now you have to do it. And I yeah. just couldn't get myself to doing it. And you have to so want now, it. And you, some people have to hit rock bottom. And, but you have to want it to make that choice and to do it. And I think it's amazing. That's the most, that's, right. I think it's amazing that you are spending your life now trying to change other people's lives or give them the tools um, and, you know, learn, uh, tell them about your experience to help them get through theirs. Because I think so many people are, you know, they live their life based on shame and guilt and they don't actually know how to start over. And I think it's great to have a friend in you. Right. And it's also, it's just like, you know, when you, when you're in the depths and you're, and you're in the grips of the addiction, it kind of steals your ambition. You lose all that ambition. And it's like, and you're right after you've been like so broken down and people look at you a certain way it's like some people don't even have the courage to come out of their house at that, yeah. let alone, you know what I mean? But I want to show them there is some power in that, but it's got to come from you. Yeah. You're the only person that can do this. Right. You know, Lilo, man, you're doing so great. Yeah. You know, how did you do it? I did it because I really wanted to do it. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't want to embarrass my parents anymore. And I just wanted to be a good person. And someone's dead and so much has happened. And now it's time for me to like 
turn this around and at least make God say one day it was at least worth having, you know, it was at least worth it having this guy in the world for as long as I did. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's the way I think of it. Like we're guests here, yeah. whether it's God or whoever put us here, we're guests and our time is limited. So I think, you know, we got to make the most of it. And that's what I'm doing now. And just a few quick questions that I think people would yeah. want to know. What's your relationship now with Chaz and Bob? Do you still talk to them? Have you heard from them since you got out of prison? Yeah. Well, Bob, I don't know if you saw, you saw the New York Post thing. Bob, mm-hmm. Bob left a comment, but I saw Bob um, when they did The Irishman, Jerry Popolis, he does Bob's hair. Um, I was in a Woody Allen movie called Wonder Wheel with Justin Timberlake and Kate Winslet back in like 15, 16. Yeah. It's before I shaved my head. <laughs> and, and, and you'll see why I shaved my head, right? <laughs> so I went to the audition. The lady was like, you know, the Patricia Basurdo, she was the casting woman. She said, Woody really loved you. It was good because he didn't really know who I was. So he's picking me. She's like, Woody really loved your acting. He loves your voice. She's like, um, would you wear a hairpiece? She said, right? <laughs> so I said, absolutely, I would wear a hairpiece. So that's when Jerry Popolis, De Niro's hair makeup guy, he did the hairpiece. Oh, man. So, so he came down to my house. He does it with like saran wrap. And then he like, he draws the lines where the contours would be and all the lines, you know, like, Wow. They sent this to London. It's a wig maker. It's like a $20,000 wig. The wig costs more than my salary. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and I was, it was one scene, right? So he knew where I lived. It was right on the Hudson River in the high rises in South Yonkers. because they put all these new buildings. So they were shooting the Irishman not far where De Niro throws the gun in the water. Mm. So he messaged me on my Instagram. I was on the treadmill at like 5.30 in the morning. He was like, hey, Lilo. He was like, uh, Bob's going to be going to be down here. He would love to see you. Just the fact that he would love to see you means that they have spoken about me before. And for him to say, come down to the set means it's okay. Because yeah. if Bobby said, don't bring that kid around, please, I don't want to see him. I don't, he wouldn't say that. When he did that, I'm not on parole anymore. It's kind of stupid to say, but I will say this. It was only for De Niro. When they said, come down, I had no ride. I'm still on parole and I don't have a car. So what I did was I took my dad's car. You know, I know it's going against what I was, and I, I am a good person and I do do the right thing, but I just thought like, how great would it be to see Robert De Niro right now? He's five minutes from where I live. Yeah. So I go down there and I got a hat on and I was clean shaven. So I look probably like from the Bronx there, right? So he's coming back and you know, that character was like six four four. you know, Frank Sheeran, the character yeah. that he played. Yeah. So he had to wear the platforms. So he's coming at me. And I'm standing there with Jerry, right? And I'm just like, and Bob's walking because he's done. That scene's done. He's walking back to his trailer. He's got to pass me on his way. So he looks like, because, you know, he had the contacts. Yeah. So he's got these green contacts. He looks like Fred Munster. And he also had the lines on his face. So, you know, the CGI. Mm-hmm. He's got all these weird lines. He's got green contacts. He's like this, like this orange hair. And he's got like these huge platforms. So this is like, this is the first time we saw each other since the movie Heat. I remember I was on the set. And, I, you know, he introduced me to Michael Mann, and it was really cool. So this is the first time seeing him, then to see him after everything that has happened and to see him looking like this. Mm-hmm. It was kind of awkward for both of us. It was a short exchange, but it was very nice. Got you know, like at first we both got a little nervous. How you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, and then he pulled me to the side and he asked me, he said, are you okay? Are you okay? And he asked me like, real, like, forget about all the bullshit. Cause he's like, I see he's got a son my age. Yeah. And he looked right at me and he said, are you okay? I said, yeah. And that was it. You know, shook his hand. Um, he left and, uh, you know, listen, I mean, I don't think we'll ever work together again, but what he's done for me, you know, thus far. And just like, not only the film, but everything that I learned from him, you know, as an actor, yeah. it's priceless. Right. You know, like you just don't, you don't get that kind of advice. Just like I said, I thought everything was standard. <clears throat> what went on there, but I really never got that kind of advice again at that level. And just that I was really able to use and still able to use to this day to be able to act. And, you know, it's, it's priceless. And, you know, obviously the Bronx Tale is going to be 30 years old, mm-hmm. September 30th. It celebrates a 30 year anniversary. Um, I can't believe that it's been that long. Um, and to, you know, like to look back so many years, you know, later and to say that I was part of something so special. And just like everything that came from it, you know, like the bad things, the good things, just from that one film and then just like everything, you know, but. I have, like I have one last question for you. Um, so you, you had a line in the, in the movie and where you said to uh, your father in the movie, um, the working man is a sucker. 
Um, so I'm just curious now, do you think that the working man is the hero or the sucker or the mobster is the hero? I showed you my dad. I never, I always thought the working man was the hero. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, cause, and that's why that movie had such meaning to me. Cause when Lorenzo was talking, that was like my own dad. Cause my dad, like I said, he was a tough dude and he could have went that day, you know, that way yeah. and growing up Sicilian. That's part of the culture because mafia started when, you know, like a lot of people invaded Sicily and, you know, like raped the women. And there was one particular instance where this woman was being raped and in Italian he said, mia figlia means my daughter, but in, in, in Sicilian say, my figlia, my figlia, my figlia, my daughter. And that's how that happened. Yeah. So these Sicilians, that's part of their culture. And and it wasn't, it didn't start as a bad thing. It started as a good thing mm-hmm. to help other Sicilians from, you know, from what they were going through. So yeah. my dad was a very proud man. And believe me, oh, listen, I got nothing against street guys because I know they're tough too. And they put their freedom on the line every day. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They'll get their daughter that 16, at 16, they'll get her that, you know, whatever car she wants, but they're free. And so there's something to be said for that as well. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that they're good. I'm not saying they're bad, but just to be able to, or willing to be able to, to say, I'm going to put my freedom on the line just so my family can have something better. Mm-hmm. There's something to be said for that as well. And I would never put that down as well. Just like Don Colleone said, it makes no difference to me the way a man makes a living to a certain extent. But, but in my own life, my own experience, I remember the coldest days in the world, Saturday mornings when I know I didn't have school, you know, uh, cereal and cartoons and then go outside. I'd hear my dad, I'd hear the coffee, the espresso machine on, smell the coffee in the house, it'd be cold out. And my dad walked so hard, work, so I could barely walk. Ah, he's just walking, just putting his boots on. I've seen that. His hands look like sandpaper. That's real tough stuff. Yeah. And he would still go to work, still go to work. Right. Day, so it's like De Niro said in the Bronx tale, day after day, let's see him try that. Yeah. That's true. Um, what do you want your legacy to be? How do you want people to know you going forward? I want people to remember me as someone who has made monumentally bad choices, but never counted himself out based on those choices and was able to to get back to a place where he was happy with himself. But and and in doing so, showed so many others that it's possible because a lot of people don't think it's possible. But once you see it, like right there in the flesh, like, oh, that's the guy from the Bronx still. Wasn't he in jail? Oh, wow. He looks great. He was fucked up too. Wow. That's how it works. Yeah. And then the next guy, like, yo, and then they start asking, you, you know, what do you do? What's your workout routine, bro? You know, once you hear that, you already get, you already got them where you want them. Cause now that there's interest in something other than that. Yeah. And then you start, you know what I mean? And to like, see, this is one thing I don't like. We're always going to be addicted to something. Mm-hmm. Okay. These meetings and everything, they expect you to go from like Jack the Ripper to Gandhi in like a week. It just doesn't happen. You're always going to be a certain way. Just get your brain is already wired a certain way. You know, there's like, you know, the prefrontal cortex, your dopamine processing system. All this stuff is very real. Yeah. You know what I mean? All this stuff is very real and it plays a big part in as to why you are the way you are. Mm-hmm. Okay. But let's just have it manifest in something more positive. I mean, listen, any addiction is not good, but you got to, you, you can't be in denial. This is what you are. You have an addictive personality. Yeah. That may be the illness, mm-hmm. the addictive personality. Not the drug addiction. That's just something that you got addicted to. You know what I mean? So, but uh, yeah. So, And it's one day at a time and everybody can, it's never too late to start over. It's never too late to make a better chance. Absolutely. And you know what? Choice. I think even more than one one day at a time. I think it's more like one hour at a time. Mm -hmm. Think of how much can happen from right now and then until tomorrow. Yeah. You know what I mean? So much. So one hour. Um, people should check out your Instagram because you give these great, um, inspiring talks. Um, is it daily that you do that? No, I, I'd like to post two a week. Okay. Yeah. So, um, tell people where they can find you, how they can reach you. If they're, you know, they want to contact you, if they have questions, if they want to get involved and, um, hear from you. Yeah. Uh, it's Lilo Brancato, L-I-L-L-O underscore Brancato, B-R-A-N-C-A-T-O. I'm basically on Instagram. I do have a Facebook but Facebook, I only post the two videos that I already post on Instagram. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm like usually much more on Instagram, more active on Instagram. So. Okay. And and the the content of those talks that you give twice a week is um, inspirational messages. What? How do you find your content? Oh, is it what know, is it what you're doing in the in your meetings that week? 
No, no. Sometimes I'll show a video. Maybe I'll come up with it and then I'll have a video that I did and then I'll have, I'll play it. But it's just stuff that I see and hear. Yeah. Like, oh, wow. That would, you know, like I not even ask people, mm-hmm. like, do me a favor. Like if you come up with something or you think of something, cause it's hard, it's yeah. not easy to keep coming up with this stuff and then to write it and then to like make it, have it make sense where there's enough information in that one. Cause I don't want to make it too long. Yeah. Make it that one minute. It's got to have the you know beginning, middle and end. It's got to have, you know what I mean? The right amount of information to where you can actually say, I learned something from that video. Yeah. Not that guy just was on there, you know, cause he likes to hear himself speak. <sighs> I like, I actually learned, no, but it's, it's not easy. Yeah. No, but you, know, you do a great I, job because I've <laughs> listened to it and I'm like, Oh, that just sounded like he was talking to me. You know, I think everyone can grab something from it. So I think it's fantastic. Thank you. Um, I really wish you the best. I think you're truly inspirational. I think you really are the epitome of somebody who has done the work and deserves a second chance and is a um, a lesson and why people should not judge a book by its cover. You should hear um, your story because there's no, you know, people then understand why you were doing what you did to get to where you are now. Um, right. And I think that's so important. And I love that you're helping others. And I can't wait to see what you do next. So um, I really appreciate you being here with me today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Misunderstood. I'm your host, Rachel Yucatel. Please be sure to subscribe to the show and give us a five-star rating and review. You can support the show by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. Do you have ideas for the show or want to reach out? Email us at info misunderstood podcast at gmail.com. That's spelled M-I-S-S understood. Thank you so much and I'll see you next time. Misunderstood.